Chapter Six, Part One of Adventures of the Infallible Godal by Frederick Irving Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An All Star Cast. One. One afternoon, when he was going home from work, a young woman who appeared perfectly normal sat down beside young Grimsey in an elevated train and asked him whether he did not think people looked silly sitting still and staring at each other, the way they have the habit of doing in public conveyances. The remark struck him as being the most sensible one he had heard during his six months' residence on Manhattan Island, and just as he settled down for an interesting, though somewhat unconventional, chat with this normal person, the guard brought in a policeman and pointed her out as an escaped lunatic. This hit young Grimsey rather hard, because he had spent his six months looking for a friend who was a sociable animal like himself. He worked in a bank, where he operated a hand-powered adding machine, and had a cage all to himself with a door that locked on the outside and walls and ceiling of interlaced brass ribbon, to say nothing of an armored concrete floor. There were cages on either side of him, in which were locked young men like himself, but just when he felt intimate enough with his neighbor, with no other excuse than sheer proximity, to say good morning, his neighbor would be wafted off to some remote cage, and a strange face would glower at his advances through the bars. Once he actually did address the paying teller on his right, and that person instantly moved to the far side of his den as though there were something in the act to affect the soundness of his surety bond. At his boarding-house young Grimsey made ineffectual attempts to engage his fellows in social discourse, but they all answered by merely growling over their food, like a dog discussing vested interests with a bone he had cornered. Primitive man probably was interested in nothing so much as his food at meal-time, but that archaic instinct is surely no excuse for civilized creatures who make a practice of sitting down together at one table. So he began to cultivate friendships, through the public prints, of people who had the habit or knack of being talked about. Grimsey read about society and uptown society, and doings of the Upper West Side, and he actually began to take a vicarious delight in their antics, much as the ragged urchin who plants his nose on the frosty window of a toy shop and lets the water of his mouth and his imagination run riot. He gloried in the hobnobbery of the August Imperial Wilhelm and Mr. Carnegie. He knew which of the Waterburys made the deciding goal in the polo tournament, and the color of his pony. He could trace the consanguinity of some of the first families through numerous weddings and divorces, and for three whole days he followed with the greatest concern the choosing of the House of Representatives' gift for the White House wedding. He knew that Mr. Gary of the Steel Trust left Aix-les-Bains on the 20th and would sail from Southampton seven days later, that Mrs. Bixby's first husband was a strange, and that her son by her second marriage resided in Paris through choice that Mem Sahib was the best mare at the Piping Rock Show, that the Culver Stones were importing a new necklace of pearls for their daughter, who was to marry Comte de Chalvray, that Buck Stringer of the Harvard Eleven kicked with his left foot, and that the Winstons were about to re-establish themselves socially in Washington after being ostracized in Manhattan through overindulgence in the divorce court. People at sea, people on shore, at Lenox, in Durham, at Palm Beach— it was all the same to Moberly Grimsey. He flitted over the face of the earth in patent leather society in the narrow confines of his hall room, 
every time he opened the extra of an afternoon paper or stirred gossip with his coffee and rolls, and he spiced the whole with juicy paragraphs from a society weekly which confided to him the backstairs talk in the most shameless fashion. So in time he came to acquire a stock of information that would have been of infinite value to a faithful old family nurse in a three-story novel or to an editor of a metropolitan newspaper. It was, after all, merely one step in acclimatizing himself to New York, assisting in the laborious process of the transmogrification of one's soul from the person of a gregarious provincial to that of an insular New Yorker. He acquired numerous bowling acquaintances in print, but none on the street. It is hard breaking the crust when one comes from the country. Do not blame young Grimsey when he began looking for queer places to eat. That was inevitable. Possibly, since he was regarded as a suspected person in the sphere that was his own, he might surprise a smile or a nod among the dwellers on the fringe. He began, of course, among the logwood and red ink of the electric-lighted restaurants off 6th Avenue, but the stuff they gave him to eat and drink made him shiver in the wind when he got outside. One night he stumbled into a Lombardy boarding house in Ninth Street, where for the nonce his spark of sociability was rekindled by a great Dane dog that rested its chin on his table and regarded him with loving eyes so long as the division of the meat was fifty-fifty. Another night he sat in a back room lined with wine casks and counted twenty men, every mother's son of them fat and sporting waxed mustaches, enter with mysterious offerings, which later he discovered to consist of such things as one reads of in a fashionable short story, or on the carte de jour at Delmonico's or Sherry's, truffles, pâtés, succulent squabs, aromatic sauces, open-winged artichokes, bottles half-empty the toll of many larders, for they were all chefs about to prepare food for themselves and eat. Somehow he had never before thought of chefs having to eat, but they did now before his very eyes, after gathering about a red-hot range in the corner and putting the old adage of too many cooks to rout by loading the air with the most tantalizing odors. Then they converted the pool table in the center of the room into a groaning board, and with many gibberings and gesticulations sat down with the utmost enjoyment, except when they turned to scowl at him over his cold ham and cabbage. Down in Pearl Street, a Spanish cook treated him to a dish that made him feel like a three-alarm fire. In Washington Street he stumbled across an Armenian atrocity in which sulfur was the main ingredient but he would not have minded the food if they had all not looked so sour when he helped himself to an empty chair and drew up to their table aside from the big dog in ninth street not a soul in all his wanderings so much as nudged his elbow in a spirit of companionship even that dog had proved fickle when a roast came to another table on the evening of the fourth of december young mr grimsey pursuing his avocation of seeking out queer places to eat found himself, for the first time since he had come to the city six months before, lost. He had left his cage at four that afternoon, and profiting by the few hours of grace granted him by an early start, he had undertaken to explore that part of the city contiguous to the old Gonsalworth market. There were items of interest on every hand to claim his attention and befuddle his sense of direction. For instance, all the merchants, prosperous-looking persons above their collars, were attired in common garb, a smock of white cotton that fitted them from head to heels like a priest's cassock. 
On all the streets were superimposed wooden awnings to the very edge of the pavements, and from the eaves hung quarters of beef, spring lamb clipped like French poodle dogs, pheasants, turtles, and such. A freight car, ghostily propelled by some unseen force around a corner, gently pushed him off its track. A one-horse wagon, laden with provisions disguised by gunny sacks, disputed his right-of-way in an alley and left him in the gutter. And at length he came upon an object of unusual interest in the shape of two white-coated men, who seemed to be doing their best to teach cratefuls of live poultry not to stick their heads out between the slats when a second crate of live poultry was descending on them from a six-foot height. The poultry did not seem to mind it in the least, and it was evidently not a game, because the two strong men were very sober at their task, except when one of them found a warm egg, which frequently happened. The finder of the warm egg invariably transferred it into his pocket, indicating the score by holding up his fingers. So interested was young Grimsey, indeed, at first in the ducking heads of the poultry and then in the egg score, that he found a comfortable wall to lean against and lighted a cigarette. He came on towards six o'clock, and when he again recalled himself to his surroundings, he was astonished to note that the strings of beef and other provender, which had so gaily festooned the eaves but a brief time before, had mysteriously disappeared, and only blank boarded windows greeted him now in place of the busy shops. He bestirred himself and started off, but to his surprise he found himself in the middle of a miniature walled city with columns and bastions and watchtowers. Also, as he read the names of the streets, they were strange to him, such as Grace, Low, Grant, and Strong. He caught a glimpse of the river through a gate, and deciding that it was the Hudson, and indicated the west of the compass, which he had lost, he turned his back on it and crossed the now almost deserted walled enclosure to a gate at the opposite side. He struck out on a street lined with warehouses and tenements in the general direction of what he believed to be the New York that he knew. As he crossed a little square, he was reminded of the object of his exploration of this locality by a sign on a dusty window which read in tarnished and fly-bitten letters, Gritton's Dining Room. It had the outer appearance of a cheap coffee house. Through the dusty glass panel of the door he made out two tables, guiltless of cloth and decorated with crockery of the armor-plate variety to be found in the poorer class of restaurants. It is quite probable that Grimsey would have passed by Gritton's dining-room had it not been for a picture in the window. It was a crayon portrait encased in a massive gilt frame shrouded in dust. The picture bore the legend Edward Askew Southern, 1858. Even then it is quite probable he would not have tarried to question himself as to the veracity of the legend, never having considered it plausible that an eminent comedian of today might have sprung from a stock immortal enough to be perpetuated in crayon so far back as fifty-eight, had it not been for a playbill draped carelessly over one corner of the ornate, though somewhat weather-beaten, frame. "'Tonight,' announced the musty yellow poster, which was fully three feet long, "'tonight will positively witness the first appearance on the boards of an American stage of the celebrated Mr. Wainbridge Maugham.' fresh from one hundred nights of distinguished approbation at Drury Lane in his celebrated drama entitled The Hidden Fortune, or Every Hand Against Her. Mr. Maugham will appear in the world-famous delineation of the character of Willoughby Southerly, a gentleman detective, supported by the original cast, including Janice Maybon as Estima, wistful and winning, 
Mr. Jack Gallant as Sir Everly Turncoat, a serpent, Mr. Halsey James as Honest John Wexford, bound on a parlous errand, Mr. Horace as Isaacs, a true friend, Miss Voorhees as the maid, a vixen, and numerous others, including every attention to the important accessories of atmosphere, scenery, and costumes. Tickets within or at the box office, American Theatre, Bowery. Grimsey softly opened the door and stepped inside. The place smelled musty as well it might. The two tables, there were only two, were covered with an unsavory veneer of their calling, and against the side wall, and four feet deep at the least calculation, were stacked a heap of rusty old frames enclosing woodcuts, crayons, and engravings of a type of art and free drawing long since dead. Packed round and about these, as Excelsior is packed around fine china for shipment, were wads of venerable handbills. One wad of perhaps fifty bills celebrated the return of Forrest as Jack Cade. Another announced Mathilda Huron and her great character, Camillo. From the date, 1854, it seemed that La Dame ou Camilla had begun weeping some time before the Civil War. Hearn the Humbug was on the eve of its premiere on another bill, and Teddy the Tiller and the Ice Witch, or the Frozen Hand, were in the midst of a revival. Of historical importance was the dramatization of the celebrated pictures of Wilkes distraining for rent, under the title of Rent Day, with Mr. Hayward and Mr. Hamlin in the principal roles. Grimsey, convinced, sat down at a table, first taking the precaution to polish its surface with an old newspaper that covered a hole in the cane seat of a chair. He waited for several minutes for the appearance of some sign of ownership, or at least of life, and when nothing developed, he seized a spoon from the pressed glass container and wrapped it vigorously against the Harveyized side of the sugar bowl, which, however, gave out only a dull thudding noise. Grimsey rose impatiently and opened a door leading to a side entry. This entry was, in fact, a long tunnel of brick leading to the street over a roughly paved floor at one end and into blank, impenetrable darkness at the other. In the old days, when Greenwich Village was two miles from Manhattan, it was the custom of the carters who occupied this quarter to leave their carts outside at close of day and lead their tired horses to the stables in the backyard through tunnels running between the houses. This fact Grimsey had gleaned out of a book long ago. If the book were voracious, the impenetrable darkness at the far end of the tunnel must lead to a stable, probably now used as a kitchen for Gritton's dining room. He determined to ascertain whether this was indeed the fact, and to this end he stepped into the tunnel and picked his way over the moist, slippery stones. The passage led for perhaps forty feet into the heart of the darkness, and abruptly turned at right angles, terminating six feet farther on in a door, through the soiled panes of which showed a dull light. Young Grimsey, in his search for something besides food with his meals during the last six months, had acquired the inevitable snooping curiosity of such an adventurer. The fact that a score of young Turks desired to set up an obscure restaurant where they might dine in peace and quiet was no reason to him why he should not walk boldly in and take a vacant chair and force them to talk in whispers if they wished to continue their family confidences undisturbed and the fact that this mr gritton whoever he may have been advertised a dining-room on his front windows and forced volunteer customers to locate the source of food for themselves was sufficient excuse for our explorer boldly to open the door before him and step through the aperture he did so 
Grimsey found himself in the middle of a paved yard, lighted only by the pale reflection from the sky of a late winter afternoon, dark on four sides, with the exception of a far corner where two windows glowed warmly. The sound of smothered voices and the occasional clinking of tableware issuing from this corner, he turned his steps confidently in that direction, positive at last that he had stumbled on a queer place to eat, and hopeful that here he might find some kindred soul to discuss topics of the day, possibly the art of acting, over his meal. There was a fanlight in the door at the corner, but it was so obscured by grime that he did not notice it until his hand was on the knob and he was peering through the opening. He paused in the act of turning the knob. Inside, before his eyes, was a long room evidently comprising the entire ground floor of a rear tenement, for on the opposite side of the apartment windows looked out into another courtyard like that in which he stood. There were twenty persons in the room, mostly men, but as he looked there came a rattle of chairs on the floor by the near wall at some spot beyond his range of vision, and in another second he saw three women advancing across the open floor to the far corner, where sat the broad, squat figure of an old man with a magnificent head on his shoulders. At this moment, however, the women attracted the attention of the peeping Grimsey more than the man. The advancing group consisted of an old woman, very evidently a grand dame from her dress and manner, supported on each side by a young and good-looking Irish girl, evidently her maids. In addition to the support lent by their round, fat arms, the old lady leaned heavily on a stick, which she pushed ahead of her with each feeble step. The ferrule of the stick was loose, and as it slid along the hard floor it gave out a curious reedy tone. Suddenly, and for no reason apparent to the intruder, the progress of the nice old lady was interrupted by the man in the corner. First he held up one hand. Then he rapped sharply on the floor with an impatient foot, at which the two maids looked at their frail little charge with a touch of tenderness and slowly turned her about face. And again they retreated beyond the angle of vision of the looker-on, but only for a second. The rasping note of the cane sliding across the floor was resumed, and the three started once more for the distant table, this time the stubby old man in the corner rising with much graciousness to receive the old lady from the arms of her two youthful guardians and thanking them with a courteous gesture. He placed the old lady in her chair, sat down himself, and began speaking, accompanying his words with gestures, every shade of which, even to the uncurling of his fine fingers, seemed a bit of art in itself. Grimsey could not distinguish the words, but as he listened, fascinated at the queer sight on which he had stumbled, with no qualms of conscience, he thought this voice must be the most beautiful in all the world. An almost metrical cadence with which the speaker accented his phrases, and the timbre, as vibrant and resonant as the G-string of a violin, reached the listener like a faraway song one might hear in a dream. As the old lady raised her face to the speaker, and for the first time the light of the lamp fell full on her features, Grimsey started. He knew the face. But the shock of it suddenly flashing on his vision in this strange quarter of the city scattered his wits so that he could not for the life of him place it. He only knew he had seen that face in the newspapers many times, and the incomplete recollection brought with it an impression of something sweet and good. She belonged to his coterie of newspaper friends, and whatever it may have been he had read of her, it was something nice. Certainly the real face before him now suggested something to be venerated by all who looked on it. Old age come to its own beautifully. 
His curious attention to this scene was roughly wrenched loose by a cackling laugh from a table nearer the door, a table he had not noticed in his interest in the old lady. As he looked at the merry one, he rubbed his eyes. He was poorly prepared for the surprise. It was none other than Mr. Andrew Carnegie, if Grimsey knew Andrew Carnegie, and he was positive he could pick the diminutive ironmaster in a million. And Mr. Carnegie was engaged in the most cordial, though somewhat guarded, conversation with Mr. John D. Rockefeller. If young Grimsey had not been such a close student of current affairs and personalities in the newspapers, he would have pinched himself and crept away at this juncture. But Grimsey did nothing of the kind. In his eagerness, he polished the dusty glass transom with his glove to get a better view of the scene, which now fairly had his hair standing on end, each follicle counting itself root by root. The two multimillionaires were at dinner. The Iron Master helped himself from a bottle. Grimsey had read only recently words from the lips of Mr. Carnegie himself to the effect that he and Emperor Wilhelm had one habit in common, that of taking a half-glass of liquor with their meals. But Grimsey had no idea that this jolly little Iron Master referred to a glass of this size. It was an eight-ounce tumbler. Mr. Carnegie wrapped his legs, which only reached the first rung of his chair, about the spindles, and as he quaffed from the goblet, without watering the stuff, he manipulated his merry little eyes in the most surprising manner. Evidently the talk had to do with the toupee Mr. Rockefeller wore. Mr. Rockefeller did wear a toupee, and his companion's eyes pointed very plainly to the fact that the wig was somewhat one-sided for the moment, disclosing at one corner a bald pate as shiny as a billiard ball. At this moment an untoward accident interrupted the amazing panorama of which Mr. Moberly Grimsey had been so fortunate as to have a peep on this night of nights. He had risen on tiptoe in his excitement. He overbalanced himself. The door gave easily, and before he could recover himself he fell headlong into the room. A shriek of many voices punctuated his crash to the floor, then dead silence, then sudden darkness filled with the scamperings of many feet. Heavy hands laid hold of him so he could not move, and a voice, bell-like in its intonation, addressed the question to someone near him in the dark. "'Where is Bannon? Isn't he out in front?' And then someone replied in an impersonal tone, "'No, I sent him down to Murray's an hour ago.' That was all. A few words exchanged in the darkness, seemingly apropos of nothing in particular, least of all the squirming form of young Moberly Grimsey, which they were holding in their midst." "'Let me go!' cried the young man, attempting to strike out with his feet, only to find that his feet, too, were fast. "'I came here looking for a place to—' "'Quit that! Take your thumb!' A thumb was doing its best to dislocate his Adam's apple, and a hand over his mouth cut off further remarks from Mr. Moberly Grimsey. He was gently picked up off the floor by four men, one at each quarter, in silence. They might have been his pallbearers, so solemnly did they start off with their burden the hand over his mouth, now being supplanted by a handkerchief jammed down his gullet. They turned this way and that. The hollow echoes of their footfalls and the crowding of the men carrying him told him they were threading a tunnel, though evidently not the same magic gate by which he had been permitted to enter on the unsuspecting assemblage. He wondered whither they were taking him. Suddenly the dull sounds of the living city that had always been in his ears became louder, like stage thunder and a breath of cool air told him he was in a street. A coat was over his head now, so he could not see. He was gently set on the flagging of the curb, 
and then, in an electric fraction of a second, the coat was gone, the gag was gone, and his pallbearers had vanished. He got to his feet and found himself rubbing his head and surveying a dimly lit avenue that presented no familiar landmarks. The thing had occurred so quickly that now, as he looked round in the dim light and found himself alone, it was quite simple to persuade himself that it was all some lurid fabrication of his brain. He walked to the end of the block and looked at the lamp-post. It said Jane Street on one side. Some small boy had put a stone through the glass legend on the other side, so the intersecting street remained a mystery. He walked back through the street, trying to fix on the house that had admitted him a few moments before. But all the houses, old-fashioned brick structures, ornamented with iron grills at doors and windows, looked out cheerlessly and impersonally. Suddenly, Moberly Grimsey broke into a run. He must find somebody, because the strangest idea had come into his mind, which, while he fuddled over his whereabouts, seemed to have been working subconsciously at something else. Two blocks farther on he encountered a young man swinging a cane, emerging from a side street. Grimsey did not stand on ceremony. "'Isn't it a fact?' he cried, bringing the young man to a sudden stop by the simple expedient of stopping in front of him. "'Isn't it a fact that John D. Rockefeller was playing golf at his home in Cleveland, Ohio, this morning, and that he beat the bogey?' The young man looked at him for a second before replying. Then he said, my acquaintance with Mr. Rockefeller is confined to the interesting gossip of his doings as set forth in the newspapers. And, he said with a smile, with that authority, I think I can assure you that Mr. Rockefeller indeed was in Cleveland this morning. I recollect an item to that effect in an afternoon edition, which I saw but an hour ago. Then how, began Moberly Grimsey, squaring off and holding up one handful of fingers to count off the points of his argument, how in the name of the seven sins could I have seen him hobnobbing with Mr. Carnegie less than half an hour ago, and within one hundred yards of this spot? It is rather remarkable, said the other soothingly. Come, are you going in my direction? We will try to figure it out together as we walk along. Grimsey came to his senses. He tried to laugh, to excuse himself with a sudden attack of his on a stranger, a stranger who seemed very much of a gentleman from the manner in which he had met the situation. "'Show me how to get out of this hole, if you will,' said Grimsey. "'My mind is giving away. I have just gone through a most amazing experience. In fact, I am not quite sure—' "'I am lost,' he said, breaking suddenly in on his disjointed sentences. "'If you will be kind enough to direct me, I will not further trespass on your good nature.' "'I will do better than that,' said the stranger, taking him by the arm. It is but a step to New York. I am going there myself. And indeed it was but a step. Under the guidance of the skilled pilot, the tangles of offshooting streets straightened out, and they set foot in Sixth Avenue as unexpectedly to Grimsey as one comes on a hidden pond in the Maine woods. Grimsey turned round and surveyed the entrance to the New York he knew. I was looking for an out-of-the-way place to eat, he explained, and then abruptly. I thank you. I will not intrude further on your good nature. You must think me loony, but believe me— His guide held up a slender, gloved hand and smiled appreciatingly. If you have not yet dined, he said, let us make it a company of two. I have leisure and an appetite. Possibly I can be of service to you. The stranger looked at his companion out of shrewd gray eyes. Some restless spirit within was clamoring for adventure, and the occasion seemed to promise something of the sort, surely. 
He led Grimsey, the latter protesting weakly, to Fifth Avenue, and there, a block to the north, turned into a mullioned doorway of brownstone, where they were instantly greeted by a gorgeous person, evidently a maitre de hotel, much rigged up for his part. His guide seemed a person of consequence, and Grimsey, impressed, followed on through the heavily carpeted hall to a small room hung with deep curtains and warmed by a glowing fire on a stone hearth. "'May I be permitted to suggest the filet de sole, Monsieur Godal?' said the maitre de hotel, in French, as he seated them. "'Godal?' cried the youth ecstatically. "'Are you indeed Godal?' It was indeed Godal, whom chance had thrown in the way of the distressed Grimsey, and the latter, whose one-sided friendships were all gathered through the common medium of the press, impulsively seized that arch-rogue by the hand in an outburst of enthusiasm. Did not the reading public know this Godal as one of the institutions of the town? As a matter of fact, the infallible thief, in his assumed character of a well-found young man about town, had proved it impossible to keep his picturesque personality from the eyes of prying news-gatherers and cameramen, and he was known outside of the favored circle to which he belonged as Godal, just Godal, as one knows Matty, or Corot, or Napoleon, or Fatima. The name Godal was an established entity. So, before the clams were gone, little clams the size of a dime, Moberly Grimsey had launched himself spontaneously into a confession, glowing with the subtle fire of a well-flattered person, a condition of mind that some personages have the faculty of conferring on those about them. Godal studied his man as he gave attention to the strange story. Godal was partial to this man Grimsey's type closely cropped red hair, freckles, tawny eyes, and a natural manner of wearing clothes, even though those clothes were obviously ready-made. "'The woman,' said Godal, "'the old lady. Tell me more about her. You say you know her. Who was she?' "'Who was the woman?' said Grimsey, bringing together the leading strings of recollection. "'Who furnished the money necessary to buy that island in the Gulf of Mexico for the protection of migrating shorebirds?' "'Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg,' responded Godal, and the restless fingers of that master craftsman ceased caressing the thin stem of his glass. "'Aye, aye, Mrs. Jeremiah Trigg!' exclaimed young Grimsey, and he stared at his companion, interpreting the sudden calm that had come over Godal for lack of interest. It was, as a matter of fact, the reverse. Jeremiah Trigg had run out a life of seventy-odd years in the character of what Wall Street was pleased to call a shark. His main occupation was loans, call loans, but using the genius that evidenced himself to the world only as brittle sensibilities and fingers that stuck to gold, he had steered the ship of several great family fortunes for the younger generations, and the best evidence of his genius lay in the fact that these same fortunes had begun to disintegrate soon after his death. His character to the public who were never permitted to peep behind the scenes was that of a miser hard as nails with a heart wrung dry of pity. Yet at his death he had consecrated his fortune of some seventy million dollars to simple charity, not for himself, that his abused name might be acclaimed, but for his widow, the gentle wife whom all the world had revered. The fortune was deeded by the will to no other trust than her kindly sympathies and immediately on her assuming the responsibilities of the administration of great wealth she had been hounded by an importunate army of professional charity-mongers 
implored, besought, threatened in the name of pity, justice, patriotism, and all the other masks of the nefarious crew who ply the profession of leeching on charity. At length, the kind creature, who loved nothing so much as a simple home life and an open, unaffected communion with the whole world, was forced into a seclusion that could be compared only to that of some prisoner rescued from a howling mob by his keepers, until she was forced to bury herself under a cloud of retainers to fight off the importunities of the world she would have loved to succor in her own sweet way. "'And this man?' pursued Godolph, thrilling. "'You tell me that when she started across the floor he wrapped her back and made her try it again?' "'Yes.' "'Describe him. A head like, like Daniel Webster, magnificent, enormous shoulders, long arms, and his hands—' The best way I can describe them is they seemed to float in the air as he gesticulated. And a voice like a god, said Godall, suddenly leaning forward over the table. A voice like a god, eh? God! Yes, cried Grimsey. Such a voice as I never— Godall, however, was not listening to him as the young man rattled on in a maze of hyperbole. Godall had risen to his feet and was pacing the room. I'm going to trust you he said, suddenly coming to a stop in front of Moberly Grimsey and putting a hand on his shoulder. I never saw you before in my life, and your interest in the golf score of John D. Rockefeller was not, I should say, a propitious opening for a prolonged friendship. Listen to me. You are a bank clerk, you say, at the Cheltingham Bank. Forget that. Marston, the vice president, will give me the loan of you. Grimsey, said Godall, dragging up a chair and sitting down at the corner of the table, the greatest actor the world has ever known is a man who has never been on the stage. And his name is David Hartman. A mind like a diamond, a voice of a god, and the frame of a hideous gorilla. That's Hartman, embittered, unscrupulous. Think, man, a man with the wits of an oaf has the world at his feet in the Metropolitan Opera House tonight because the good God above gave him not only a throat, but the physique of a man the lack of a body of the most commonplace proportion, such as you and I and everybody else possess as an inalienable right, is all that prevents the greatest master of his art in this generation from claiming his own. Tell me, could the lithe Hamlet stalk the stage in the guise of a hideous ape? Imagine Lear seizing his straws and crying, Why, every inch a king, if he were a spindle-legged dwarf. "'Enough of this!' cried Godall, suddenly rescuing himself from his thoughts. "'Never mind about your precious cage at the bank. You are mine. There is work to be done.'" End of an All-Star Cast, Part 1